Hey, are you or someone you care about considering, dealing with, or being through a divorce or separation? Well, you're in the right place. You don't have to do this alone. There are people who care and want to help. Hi, I'm Dina Court, an author, blogger, publisher, and empowerment coach. Thanks for joining me on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. You are going to hear from our team of experts and professionals how to navigate this difficult transition in your life easier, more efficiently, and with better outcomes. Did you know we host online divorce resource groups that are free to attend and everyone is welcome? Check out the links in our show notes and be sure and join us. We love bringing experts to you. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com and stay tuned at the end for the legal language. Ready? Here we go. Oh, have we got a juicy topic for you today with so many myths associated with it. And what is the accurate information? My guest today, Christine Shepard, who is a lawyer, a family law lawyer, she is going to be addressing the myths and helping us become more educated around common law relationships. And her term for that is APE, and you're going to find out why. Hi, Christine. I'm really happy to have you with me today and introduce you to the audience of Divorce Magazine Canada's podcast. I'm so excited to hear about all the areas that you were able to help people with during divorces or separations. And there's so much to cover. So you're going to be back again. Don't worry, everybody. Uh, we will have her back. So she is going to tell us more about herself, please. And then we're going to dive into one of the specific topics that that she's an expert in. So welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for having me, Dina. I'm really happy to be here and uh, chatting with people going through uh, divorce. So my name is Christine Shepard. I'm one of the founding partners of Smith & Little LLP here in Calgary, Alberta. Um, I guess happily, thanks to COVID, we are also all over the province. We take files in Red Deer, Edmonton, Lethbridge, uh, anywhere else you can name, that's all good for us. And we focus on family law. Family law covers a lot of different areas. Um, I would say we don't you know, generally do child and family service work or adoptions or surrogacy. Those are very specialized areas, uh, but we certainly do things like cohabitation agreements, prenuptial agreements. You know, Those are the agreements at the beginning of a relationship where you're pre-negotiating what might happen if your relationship ends. Uh, we also do all kinds of parenting issues, child support, spousal support, dividing family property, and then of course, separation and divorce. So uh, lots of things that we can potentially talk about in future podcasts, but today I'm hoping to chat a little bit about the myths of common law. Ooh, that's a good one. So I like how you described your services because you can help people from beginning to end if sadly they do end. So that is good to know that you are more than just uh, the divorce lawyer uh, on the end, and you can help people in many different areas. Now, this is a really interesting topic, and I hear so many myths. And when we've talked before, some that you addressed, I was really quite fascinated to hear your answer on, because 
there are a lot of myths. And I think even when the timing differs, I believe by province on when a common law is considered in effect, uh, according to cohabitation length. Yes. And thank you so much for reminding me. I absolutely have to have a disclaimer that this is you know, really just a discussion on Alberta and Alberta specific family law, because you are absolutely correct. It can vary from province to province. And certainly I have no idea about uh, other jurisdictions, you know, such as the United States, right? So uh, this is very specific to Alberta. Um, and the reason I want to be so clear about that is because I'm well aware, you know, there are federal laws as well that will, you know, use the phrase common law. They will define it for, you know, a year, for example, I believe in the Income Tax Act, uh, which is different from how we address people who live together in a romantic relationship and anticipate sharing their property in Alberta. So in Alberta, we refer to those people as adult interdependent partners, and it's a very specific discussion about what, what that means and when you hit that threshold to become what I lovingly refer to as an ape. So, As a uh, what? <laughs> as an ape, an AIP. So, oh. <laughs> not an APE, but an AIP. So if I use that phrase, I'm... Yes. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge. It's a mouthful to say adult interdependent partner yes. over and over and over. Um, so yes, that's where that comes from. And I might just jump in and talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, preconceived notions that we hear about here. And I don't know if you have any others to add, but um, some of the things people have asked me about is, you know, we're common law and they think, you know, we've lived together for six months or one year. So that automatically means that we get to share in each other's property. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes I have to tell people that's not the case. Uh, so for clarity, um, an adult interdependent partner is defined by Alberta legislation. And it means anybody who lives together for three months, three years or more in an adult interdependent partnership or it can be less, such as one year if you have a child together. Um, sometimes people will say things, like I said, you know, we get property rights as soon as we have uh, lived together for six months or one year, and that's not the case. You do have to meet that threshold of adult interdependent partner uh, before you can generally claim for rights under um, the legislation. There are other aspects to this that can be considered if you don't hit that adult interdependent partnership um, status, but those are very specific things that I don't know if we have time to get into. So as always, consult a lawyer if you think you might have a property claim and you're not sure. That's good advice, Christine. And it is something that, oh, am I not coming through there? Yeah, it should be. Um, it is something that we do need to clarify. And at the beginning of the program, in the introduction, I do um, include a disclaimer that everyone's case is very specific to them. And it is a really good idea to use this as a way of educating yourself and informing yourself about some of the aspects that could be involved in a separation or a divorce that you might not have considered, and then can address that with a professional that you see personally. Yes, exactly. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. 
I do have a couple questions already that have come to mind. So the CRA or the Canadian Revenue Agency considers one year term or a one year time frame, and then it's a, a common law relationship. And a limit for claiming, can you address that in your presentation for anybody who has uh, left uh, common law or adult, an ape situation? And how many years would they have then to to cl- make any claims on that or that they waive that at certain at a certain point? Yeah, I believe it's it's generally two years from the date um, where you've ended your relationship. Uh, having said that, it may be extended if, for example, your claim to a property is, you know, something that you own legally, right? So if you're on the title as a joint owner in tenancy or uh, tenants in common, you, you would be able to extend that claim by virtue of having the legal ownership rights to a house. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So and it's I, similar to any other claims, legal claims, is that kind of that two-year window? Yeah, although it gets trickier uh, once you are into legal marriage, right? So if you're uh, living as a common law partner or an adult interdependent partner for some time, and then you are legally married, the the timeline changes about when you're able to make certain claims. So again, very specified um, advice, but generally speaking, you know, you want to make sure you're protecting your claims as soon as possible. And as soon as you think you potentially have that claim, you should speak to somebody and just make sure that the timelines are uh, correct and appropriate and you know what what you have to work with specifically. Great. Thank you. Uh, so don't know, Dina, if you want to kind of jump in because I, I've maybe gone a little bit further, but <laughs> we're talking about adult interdependent partners and being in a relationship of interdependence. I think a lot of people automatically kind of say like, yeah, I know what that means, but I don't know if that's necessarily always the case, right? So uh, the act actually does set out a number of different factors to help people understand what a relationship of interdependence looks like. Um, So generally speaking, you would share in one another's lives, you are emotionally committed to each other, you function as an economic and domestic unit. And that one has even more factors to consider, such as, you know, is it a conjugal relationship? Is it exclusive? Do you hold yourselves out to others in the community as being um, in this type of unit? Have you formalized your obligations, intentions, responsibilities? You know, things like, do you have a prenuptial agreement or a cohabitation agreement? Um, Have you named each other as beneficiaries under your will or as part of your um, RSPs or other registered investments, things like that. Do you own property together? Have you had kids together? So as you can see, it's not a, you know, we've now lived together for three years, check that box. You know, most people would be able to get there, but if there's different aspects like this, like we kept all of our finances very separate and maybe we only live together for part of the year because one of our, uh, one of us maybe works overseas for part of the year or, you know, we've maintained separate residences, but all the other things match here. So um, it can become quite tricky to make that decision in some circumstances. That's interesting. There are many, many facets to this. So again, it, it becomes very complicated when you start digging into any of those that there are many variables involved, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yes. 
So do you have a presentation you want to jump into now and share with us? Uh, sure. So part of the reason that this is very important to determine as to whether or not people are adult interdependent partners is because once you've hit that threshold and then provided your date of separation is after January 1st, 2020, then you are given the same property rights that married couples has have. So you are treated as though you were a married couple and the Family Property Act applies to you, which I think can be surprising to some people, especially those that you know did not get married, tried to keep their finances separate, but they may be considered adult interdependent partners anyway. And therefore, you know, your partner would have a claim to 50%, up to 50% of all of the property that was accrued during the course of the relationship from the date you moved in together. So it goes back retroactively to that date of cohabitation until the date of separation or trial as to when we are going to divide that property. And I think that's a really important part also is that our act in Alberta says all the property accrued until the date of trial is subject to division. So if you have a lengthy separation, that can be very problematic, especially for the partner who might've been the saver in the relationship, right? So if you separate and then five years later, you can be hit with this claim, you've saved a lot of money in there, you know, what now? So again, it's very important to be addressing these issues towards the beginning of a separation or even before, if you're thinking about it, right? Just talk to somebody to get some information about what might be applicable to you, especially if you're the saver, right? Because when we're talking about family property, we don't just mean things like the house that's included, but we also mean, you know, pensions, RSPs, other registered investments, um, you know, it can be things like gold and whatever other, you know, lucrative uh, things you might have in your relationship. And then it includes debt too. So mortgages, lines Ooh. of credit, uh, credit cards, debts to family members might be included. And I think that can also be surprising to some people, especially those who didn't intend to have that shared responsibility for debt. And it doesn't matter in whose name it's held. If you reach that ape status, it's considered family property. We put it into the pot and that pot is what gets divided at the end of the day. So there's a couple more things I think that are arise out of this discussion too. As I've said, you know, it's the date of cohabitation to the date of trial. Um, lots of people do not get to a trial ever, and they do agree on a different date for dividing the property, and that can be whatever people would like it to be. Uh, for the sake of convenience, I think a lot of people will say, you know, the date of separation is what we'll use as this, the date of division of the property, but it doesn't have to be. It can be, you know, the date that coincides with a year end for your corporation or uh, some other date that may make sense for your own family circumstances. That's interesting. There are, there's so many components to this. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, I've sort of generally said, right, that there's this claim to up to 50% of the family property and the family property is all in one big pot to be divided. But there are some exceptions to the rule, and I would be remiss if I didn't chat about those a little bit. So 
property that a party goes into the relationship with is considered exempt. So provided it's something that still exists at the end of the day and they can show where that money came from, you get that back out of the pot at the end of the day. So for example, if I had a house and um, you know it was worth, I don't know, $450,000 and I had a $300,000 mortgage, so I had equity in that home when my partner moved in with me of $150,000. Provided that's still there, I haven't remortgaged at the end of the day, I would get that first $150,000 back out of the home before we divide any of the equity. The equity that accrued after that uh, initial date, so let's say it's grown and it's now $200,000. So that $50,000 is shareable between me and my partner. And what percentage though is up for debate. It's not an automatic 50-50 sharing, but uh, you know, if we were together for 20 or 30 years, had a bunch of kids together, it's probably gonna be closer to that 50%. If it's, you know, we were together for three years and one day, and you know, my partner maybe didn't contribute a lot to that, we didn't have kids together, solely owing to market forces, it might be appropriate to have a lesser percentage payout to my partner. There's lots of other exemptions, we call them. So this is property that is exempt from division. It's the exception to the rule, such as if you get a gift from a third party just to you, or if you alone you know, sue somebody in your own name for your own loss and you get some money for that, that might be exempt. Um, inheritances are another big one. Inter vivos gifts are a big one. So those are you know, gifts that you might receive as kind of an advance on an inheritance. Um, or other gifts, you know, we see a lot of those ones where, um, you know, there might be a generational wealth transfer and, you know, there might be parents that pay a significant amount of money, gift it to their child in order to purchase a home or to have other investments now. Um, so how do you protect those from division as well is another question that will often arise. And I don't know that we have time to get into all of those <laughs> things, but suffice to say, you know, the general rule, right? You put all the property in the pot, you figure out what those exemptions are, take them back out. And then everything that's left over is divided 50-50. Um, again, that includes all the assets and all of the liabilities, regardless of whether or not those are in sole names or joint names. Right. Do you have slides that you want to share? You had anything, any visuals that we uh, can share sure. the screen if you want. I know for some people it's easier to to see a, a bit of a a list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. We can certainly and some topics to refer to. to for anybody who's listening to the podcast, just a reminder that you can catch all of the YouTube videos of our interviews on our channel and that link is in the show notes as well as all the ways to get a hold of Christine and find her to uh, talk to her about how you can sort out all these details at whatever point you might be. Yes so if you can bear with me for a second. Yeah here. no rush I kind of put you on the spot there. <laughs> screen maybe figure out where to go should be just on the bottom of the screen and then you can yeah. choose us uh, choose which window to show us here we go 
Sorry, I'm not overly talented here. With... That's all right. I love how there are myths out there that just seem to <laughs> pass from neighbor to friend to cousin and everybody's got their ideas of how this works and I don't know that that many really have assumed that those were wrong or have have realized that those were wrong they've assumed they're right and it's uh it's a bit of a challenge probably when you have people come into the office and and want to ask uh, about something and they've got all these assumptions from years past even myself coming from Saskatchewan one year and I don't that's probably in many provinces one year is considered the the common law uh, period of time of after cohabitation and then it's and becomes becomes a common law relationship here we go property myths debunked Yes, yeah, so I sort of skipped through some of these, but these are the ones that we have heard sort of frequently. So I like to just put them out there. You know, for example, the house is in my name. That means I get to keep all the equity, as we've just discussed. Maybe right. not. Um, you know, if you pay rent, then there might be no claim for support. Again, maybe not. Um, that might it won't preclude. Um, having a claim to the actual property itself either. Or I signed a prenuptial agreement and I don't like it, so I don't want it to be enforceable. Doesn't it expire automatically? No. Um, what if it's not fair? Well, what is fair? I don't know. <laughs> you know. So uh, there's a lot of these different issues that have come up for a lot of people and are challenging, I think, to address if you just go by what word on the street is, because I think if you ask 10 different people, they might have 10 different opinions on what, what the law should be or what it is. So the Family Property Act, just backing up, this is where I've been talking about what the law is, right? So it applies uh, to legally married spouses, uh, and it also uh, it provided you are habitually resident in Alberta. And it also applies to adult interdependent partners and separated or former spouses. So then I just kind of run through what uh, adult interdependent partners means. So again, you're in a relationship for three or more years or a relationship of some permanence and you have a child. So it doesn't need to be three years if you have a child together. Or uh, you could enter into an agreement to be adult interdependent partners. And then these are the factors that I was addressing before. So you share in one another's lives, you're emotionally committed, you function as an economic and domestic unit. Can you define that further for us, please? Yeah. So this is the economic and domestic unit, right? Well, and look at there. <laughs> the next slide. There's the conjugal relationship, the degree of exclusivity. Um, do you hold yourselves out? Like, do you vacation together? Do your, would your neighbors be surprised to learn you're not legally married? Uh, things like that. Have you formalized your legal obligations to each other? This is where I was talking about, you know, do you own property together? Are you naming each other 
uh, beneficiaries to your registered investments? Have you executed a will with the other as a beneficiary? Um, how have you supported each other? What are your direct and indirect contributions to the other, right? Do you share bank accounts? Um, you know, was one of you historically funding the other one? Um, do we have more of a quote unquote traditional relationship with one spouse staying at home? We look at all of those factors. Um, that's the financial dependence or not, you know, the care and support of the children that plays into this as well. Where would you be with the relationship without the relationship? Who is, uh, you know, having what kind of responsibilities in the home? And of course, the ownership, use and acquisition of property. Did you buy properties together? Are you holding it legally together or not? Or did you really go out of your way to try and keep things separated? Um, and of course, this is, you know, provided you don't have a contract that says we don't want this act to apply to us. Um, it's also interesting, you all, you cannot have more than one adult interdependent partnership. Um, you can't be a professional partner. And I think that was added because, you know, there are circumstances where there might be a care, a professional caretaker living with somebody, they would not be considered an ape if they're being paid for the services provided. So if you had an in-home caregiver or something like that, or a nanny, they wouldn't qualify as an ape. Uh, you also cannot be an adult independent partnership if you are living with a spouse. So uh, we surprisingly maybe have had that come up before where, um, you know, husband in that case was living with his wife, but then living with a girlfriend on the weekends. Girlfriend claimed that she was an adult independent partner, but she can't be under the act because it was found that the husband was uh, living with his wife. Also, you could be a minor, which is, I think, interesting. And it doesn't actually require, you know, in a romantic relationship. So, so in some cases, you want to be careful, like it could be a family member, it could be someone we might otherwise consider as just, um, you know, being in a rental relationship. So you want to be careful about some of these things, I think. Yikes, that's interesting. I bet a lot of people aren't aware of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, so once you get into that adult interdependent partnership, then family property is divided equally. So this presentation just runs through what the categories of that property is and how it's addressed. So the first one is that exempt property. Then you have exempt property that has increased in value. And then you have everything else that you've acquired during the course of your uh cohabiting relationship. And then I've listed out here the exempt property. So these are the things we talked about previously about gifts, um, things that you had before the relationship, inheritances, insurance policy payouts, damages for lawsuits. And then uh, the market value of the exempt property at the time of cohabitation or marriage uh, whatever is appropriate to you is exempt from division. Uh, then we kind of talked about, you know, my house example, it increased in value. So again, there's no presumption that that will be shared equally, but it will be divided in a way that the court deems to be just and equitable. 
Um, there are lots of different things that the courts will look at. And unfortunately, I don't have time to go into all of that. But um, essentially, this gives the, the court the ability to say this seems fair to us as to what an appropriate division will be, which is why they look at all the other factors about um, your relationship as well. Now, Christine, I'm going to jump in here because I want people to know that you are the guest speaker at one of our divorce resource groups that's coming up in July. And it's the one, what about our property? I believe it's on the 11th or what about the property? And you will be going deeper into that topic, uh, more specific to the property. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yes. So the date of division of property is the date of trial, or if you can agree on a different date. And I can say from experience, you know, we have had people who had lengthy separations up to 10 years. And I can tell you that property had it been divided when they separated would have been a very different outcome to what it ultimately should have or could was at the end of the day. So again, it seems like in those circumstances too, I don't know for whatever reason, but we absolutely had files where one of them was, you know, quite the saver. The other one was quite the spender and trying to negotiate that after as to what a fair settlement is can be really tricky. So how can you protect yourself in those cases from, from someone making those claims years later? So I guess provided you don't have an agreement already that sets out, this is our property on a separation. So if you had a cohabitation agreement or a prenuptial agreement that dealt with property on separation, uh, that can be your best. Uh, the second to that is, you know, once you've separated, Put it all, you know, in the records, right? Get those bank statements about what you had if you think you had exemptions, because there is going to be a paper trail required unless your former partner agrees that you had exemptions. So sometimes what we see in these lengthy separations is uh, somebody will tell us, you know, I had $100,000 in an RRSP when we got together. And the other side says, I don't remember that, show me, right? And they might not be able to go back far enough to get that paperwork. So even going into these relationships, even if you don't have an agreement proper, um, keep those bank statements from when you moved in together showing, you know, this is what I had, or um, this was the value of my house. This was what I purchased it for. This was the equity in it. This was the mortgage at the time, right? So as much information as you can have is your best protection. Um, sometimes, you know, people can accept other exemptions, you know, we've also had them where I've had clients say I had all of these exemptions and the other side says, yep, that's right. I remember all of those things and we don't actually have to prove them. But um, being a lawyer, I think, trains me to be a little pessimistic and mm -hmm. it's always better just to keep that, keep it in a file. Hopefully you never have to use it, but just in case you'll be glad that you kept that information. And then seeing a lawyer as soon as you can after that separation and when you know that that's going to be happening. Um, we can do all kinds of different property division. The good news for people is, you know, if you have a lawyer and you have a full understanding about your finances, you've received all the financial information, you can pretty much do what you choose to do, provided it's generally fair. Um, so having said all of that, you know, the earlier you think about these things, the more options are available to you. And you can trade off property with spousal support. And there's all kinds of different ways of coming to a financial settlement. 
Um, but again, doing that quickly is better. Hope I answered your question, Dean. I felt like I talked for a really long time. <laughs> no, that's you're the person with the information. So I just I ask a question and then I get your answer. It kind of does. I'm just thinking of uh, you know years down the road and you haven't put those things in place and then someone does come back with a claim do you ever see that happening like you mentioned the two years kind of a time limit for a claim yes and again like provided you're not married um yeah we have seen those lengthier ones I would say more so for people who are legally married uh because they're that time limit doesn't start unless you get a divorce. Once you have a divorce judgment, that will start the client time ticking for you to bring your property claim. Most people resolve the property. I guess most people who talk to me <laughs> resolve the property uh, before the divorce because uh, you know most of the time people say, I want to figure out our arrangements for our children and our finances. And then the divorce is secondary to that. Good, good information. Thank you. Sure. So moving on, I'm sure people are wondering what if we weren't married and we don't qualify as adult interdependent partners. And this again is where it gets even more complicated, unfortunately. So I've sort of set out what the rules are here. There's no presumption that you'll get any of the property period. Um, you have to make a claim for unjust enrichment. So essentially that test is, you know, you as my partner have gotten some sort of benefit because of something that I did. And it's not fair that you get to keep that benefit. So that's the, the nut of the claim. Um, it's a, adjusted a little bit because you can make that claim regardless of, you know, whether you're in any sort of relationship or a family together. If you're in a family together, the courts also look at, you know, is there a joint family venture here? And they look at, you know, did you acquire this together? Are you economically integrated? What was the intent here? Is there an intent to share that value somehow, you know, and have the spouses or not spouses, sorry, have the partners prioritized the family unit? So we're looking more into, you know, again, what is the fair outcome here, right? How did you guys deal with your property? Was there an intent? Is there any sort of evidence that this uh, property, whatever it is, is meant to be shared or not? And it can get very complicated. So I guess general tips is to uh, call a good lawyer because knowledge is power always, right? Even if you're just thinking about moving in with somebody or separating from someone, just knowing what the basic rules are and how they can apply to you is always a good thing, I say. And then again, document, document, document. So have a timeline, you know, write down when you moved in together. It's often the case that, you know, we will see people, you know, 20, 25, 30 years later and they don't really remember when they moved in together, which is fine. And maybe that's not an issue for everyone, but um, I, I think it's always helpful to have that. And then making sure that you have a really good paper trail for, especially the assets that you had in your name at the time you moved in together. Those are key documents to have. Um, and then, you know, if you receive an inheritance or a gift, keep that, keep the will, keep whatever other information you have, keep the bank statements showing, you know, I got this money, I put it into this account in my name. Um, 
keep those things in your own name because that's another one we haven't really gotten to, but you can lose exemptions if you put it into something held jointly. So if I put you know, my inheritance into a joint bank account, I'm going to lose part of that exemption. So again, knowledge is, is power there. If you have emails or texts or social media posts, anything about, you know, we're so happy that we're sharing this new house together and things like that, that can go towards the intention of sharing. So just keeping everything that you can is my best advice for that. Um, and then I, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so, some other lawyer myths, because I'm hoping that when people hear me speak, um, you know, they're realizing it doesn't have to be a terrible process to talk to somebody just to understand what might happen. Right. I, again, I think knowledge is power. Nobody even has to know that you had a discussion about what could happen, right? So just because you call a divorce lawyer doesn't mean you are getting a divorce or that it has to be a nasty fight. It just means you're getting some information as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then, you know, getting a super aggressive lawyer will get me the best outcome. I don't think that's true. Uh, the best lawyers get really good outcomes by working cooperatively with the other side and, um, you know, you get really far when you can pick up the phone and say, oh, yes, Christine told me that she has this disclosure and we'll get it over. And so, you know, I just trust her and I don't need to bring a court application because she told me that. Right. So having a, a positive working relationship with other lawyers is important. Um, and then we have also heard, you know, paralegals must be cheaper. So there are some people who are not lawyers who can help negotiate settlements. Um, I guess generally I've found, I don't think they are cheaper all the time. Uh, and there's also some real risks that I'll address with that as well. Or um, sometimes people will say, I'll do just as well as my own as I would with a the lawyer. There are studies out there showing that's just not true. Um, lawyers, you know, a big part of what we do is being objective and independent and providing you advice, even if you don't want to hear it. Uh, that's just not possible. When people are going through divorce, they're thinking with a different part of their brain and, you know, they're emotionally involved and invested and this is their family. So all of that is absolutely understandable, but it means that it can be very helpful having an objective third party involved to talk to you about what the options are and what is legally relevant in your relationship and your separation. And then I always think it's important to know these are kind of the, the pitfalls if you do hire a paralegal is that they cannot give you legal advice. So we've had lots of people come in and say, oh, we're waiving spousal support because our mediator said that we could. And I went, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. And, um, you know, I've had to be the bearer of bad news in some circumstances where I have to tell people that, you know, the agreement you negotiated isn't good for you, right? Or it's, you know, and I have to kind of crash the agreement, not because I want to, but because once people receive more information about what their entitlements are, they may not be prepared to, to stand by what they have discussed with a mediator or a paralegal. And then they, they don't have insurance. There's no oversight. Uh, lawyers are very highly regulated. We have to give uh, advice that's competent, or we can be sued. We can be uh, you know, getting into all kinds of trouble with the law society. So 
you know, overall, especially if you're dealing with property and there's any sort of money involved, like you really want to make sure that you're getting good advice that you can count on. Um, and then I think these are just some general strategies I would say is, um, you know, I tell my clients to wear, wear your halo, right? It can be so tempting to speak negatively about the person from whom you're separating. Uh, that's never good. Um, you never want to read a nasty email you wrote in the middle of the night um, that maybe you're just inventing, but we have seen those come up in affidavits or presented to the court. And of course, that paints everything in a negative brush. Um, always present a united front to your children. Work together as co-parents, even if you're separating. Obviously, I haven't talked much about parenting at all. Happy to do that at a later date. Um, and then getting support from family, friends, counselors, um, religious organizations, wherever it is that you can find that support, make sure that you're getting it because it's really hard to go through these processes. Um, and you want to make sure that you're getting to a space where you can, you know, try and use your more logical brain because when it's very fresh or you're very emotional about something and you're making decisions in the heat of the moment, those aren't always the decisions you wish you made later. And then of course the courtroom isn't the time for retribution. It's not the place for that. The law is just going to be applied. And I think sometimes we hear from clients that, you know, they really want somebody just to say, you know, your husband was a very bad man who treated you very poorly. Sometimes you get that. Sometimes you don't, right? Like all of the property that I've discussed so far, that applies. You know, it doesn't matter if somebody wasn't the nicest person or committed adultery, um, wasn't very nice to you, right? So it just, it isn't the place for that. So that brings me kind of to the end of this very brief introduction <laughs> to uh, property and what happens if you separate. Thank you, Christine. This has been really fascinating and uh, more myths than I'd even realized were out there about this topic and, and this, this portion of the population. And from my understanding, the stats say that, you know, there's 50% roughly oops, of first marriages that are ending in divorce. That apparently is only including married couples. So the separation of these ape situations is an is another additional percentage of the population who are also experiencing uh, a breakup in in that relationship and, and in that arrangement. So the percentage is very high of our population that is affected by this. And so I think understanding that that is a legal considered a legal relationship and there are you know, divorce lawyers that can help you through that and help bust those myths that you've presented to us today. It's encouraging to know that there are people who do understand, such as yourself, all the intricacies. This was very high level introduction to to some of those myths and, you know, what we need to consider if if we're in those situations. So I also want to ask more about just briefly the self-representation 
because I think there's a, a lot of misunderstanding there when people are looking at the costs involved and thinking that might be an option for them to save money is just, just represent themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think in family law, particularly the biggest pitfall I think is not having that objective person kind of checking you and giving you that legal information because family law is very complicated. And then if you're self-representing, especially in court, it becomes very challenging because you then have to figure out all the rules of court. And, you know, I have to say, even in practice, and there's been so many changes over COVID with where to send what, um, it's really hard for people to do that uh, to their own benefit if they don't have the legal training. There's, like I said, there's been studies too that show like the outcomes just don't support self-representing. But of course, I'm fully aware there's a big gap between being able to qualify for legal aid and being able to afford a private lawyer on a full retainer. So there are um, other options available. There are people who offer divorce coaching Um, So if you do have, say, a court application coming up and you're not sure, you want to make sure your materials are prepared correctly, uh, you can pay a lawyer just on a a flat fee basis to look through your materials, to give you advice, to coach you on how to present your material to the court, and at least uh, make sure that you're hitting what the appropriate legal test is and answering it. Because if you can do that, you know, you're miles ahead of, of most people. Um, there's also what we call like limited scope retainers. Um, so you might, you know, be in a position to pay for legal advice on an ad hoc or as needed basis. Um, but yeah, it can be really hard to navigate this, especially on your own. And especially when it's your family, your children, um, I would just always say, if you can try and have a lawyer. Well, and like you mentioned, there's an emotional level to this that makes it difficult to think about it in an objective way and and represent yourself with the best possible uh, outcome for you. And as well, how many people can represent themselves with the knowledge that's necessary in the courts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I I can't imagine how overwhelming that must feel for people having to figure out, you know, what is the appropriate way. And we've certainly had people too, who, you know, have come to us and done their own research, but not realized that, you know, maybe the articles they're printing are out of Australia or um, somewhere where, you know, yes, they might do it that way there, but that doesn't mean that holds any weight here whatsoever. So I think even identifying what the correct law is and then speaking to it takes a lot of you know really focused research for people if you haven't been trained in it and it's so time consuming and stressful and that's the other part of it is you know lawyers really can limit the amount of time spent on certain issues because we're able to you know like I said identify what the legal issues are we know what those legal tests are and how to meet them and what facts to present to best support your case and putting all of that together and then also being able to choose the right forum for people is another one, right? So 
you know, the court now has so many different great avenues. They have a resolution council. There's early intervention case conferences. You can go to private mediation. You can do judicial dispute resolution meetings. There's all kinds of different things that might be appropriate depending on what your issues are, but strategizing what is going to be the most effective use of your time and money and get you the outcome that you need is really where I think lawyers add some of the most benefit, I would say. So who would you say is the best person for someone to ask about all these options that you just listed and help them find the best fit? Um, I'm assuming you want me to say other than me. (laughs) No, no, include yourself. Um, Yeah, it's really hard. So, you know, lawyers obviously are, are versed in that. It's an obligation under the rules of court that we, you know, consider these different resolution options for people when we're giving them advice. The court options are set out on their website, um, like the judicial dispute resolution, early intervention case conference, they have resolution council. Um, There's a King's Bench child support resolution program that's also available. Uh, So those are all in a piecemeal fashion kind of set out there and they do have certain qualifications that you need to meet before you can go to certain processes. Um, The private ones like private mediation, private arbitration. So that's where you hire a mediator to help you work through these things. Um, The mediator absolutely could be a lawyer, but that mediator can't give legal advice to either party, right? Or they lose that neutrality that's so important. Um, or arbitration where you decide we're not going to have a court decide this, but we can't decide it on our own. So we're going to ask this particular third party to make the decisions for us. Again, it's so important which person you're choosing to make those decisions, right? And mediators and arbitrators, just like judges, you know, they all have their own individual skills and talents, right? And so some mediators very much like high conflict parenting matters, uh, others are more comfortable with, you know, complicated property issues and maybe trying to divide, you know, family businesses that are worth quite a bit of money. How do we do that with the tax planners and the corporate lawyers and the rest of it, right? Same for arbitrators. People just have their own knowledge base and skill sets. So if you are trying to choose one of those people on your own, I would absolutely suggest, you know, talk to them, find out what what they enjoy doing the most, right? Um, Obviously I have my own roster of people for different uh, things that I choose to go to them for. Um, And then price point is obviously very important too, right? You can go to a mediator in Calgary for $300 an hour. Um, Some of them will do a flat fee. I think it ranges all the way up to about 850 or $900 an hour. And I guess that's the other important piece too is I wouldn't necessarily just choose somebody based on what their their hourly rate is right so some of these very high um, or expensive mediators are well worth it because they were actual judges who sat for 25 plus years they can get through some of those things very quickly because they're used to that and you can get a decision very quickly versus maybe finding someone who's not quite as directive or Um, somebody who wants to walk through all the problems together, which is fine. And if that's, you know, what's required to get to an agreement at the end of the day, that's time well spent. 
But again, it's it can be hard to weigh all of those factors and then also determine, you know, is this mediator going to be a good fit for us and help us do that? So again, I just think that's really good added benefit of a lawyer to be able to say, yes, um, you know, for you, I think, you know, a half day mediation with this person at this much money is going to effectively resolve this issue, right? So it takes some of that pressure off to be trying to figure out all of these different factors on your own, because again, they're big decisions and it matters which course you choose for sure. That's great. Now I want to end this on uh, a, a little more positive note. I want to talk about the beginning and those, those cohabitation agreements. Now I think people want to resist them out of uh, just like not making a will. I mean, a will is a little different. We're guaranteed at some point we're going to die. We just don't know when, but we should have those in place. They are very important. We resist doing it because we feel like, oh, we're signing a death certificate, right? But they are so important for our families or, you know, protecting what our assets are. How do you uh, best encourage people to put those in place? And what briefly, what are some of the points that they should be considering or be prepared to discuss and include in the, in an agreement like that? Mm -hmm. I would say almost everyone that phones about these types of agreements generally has kind of the same idea, right? We would like to have your stuff be yours, my stuff be mine, and then whatever we buy together, we will share that together. So first I would say, you have to identify what, what is your stuff, right? What do you have? So even for some people, just going through that exercise of identifying all their assets and listing them can be a bit overwhelming, but it's important because it does solidify your exemptions essentially at the beginning. You're also in a sense, pre-negotiating the division of your property on separation while you still like each other, right? Um, I've heard from a few people, right? You divorce a different person than you married is what I've heard. And having these discussions, well, you know, you're still in a positive light and working towards what your real goals are is very important. It also helps people to have those discussions at all, right? And say, this is what I have. This is my debt, right? It helps to at least put that on the table for both people, because I think even just talking finances can be really challenging. Um, what else would I say about it? Some of the things to think about are, you know, do you have assets at all even to protect, right? So if you're kind of a couple of kids just out of school, maybe in your early 20s and you don't have much to speak of assets or debt, it might not be appropriate for you. Um, if you're getting together a little bit later, you've had some time to earn, you've invested, you've had a house, or this is maybe a secondary relationship, a second marriage, or uh, moving in with someone new and you want to think about how do I, you know, I guess, carve out what might be our property for the children that I might've had before this relationship. Those are some of the questions to be considering about whether these agreements would be appropriate. And where do wills and these agreements impact each other cross overlap? Is there, is there anything 
Yes. So it's really up to the parties as to how they would like that to be addressed. The will and these agreements have to coincide. So if you get your agreement first, you absolutely need to make sure that you're giving a copy to your will's lawyer or vice versa, right? That we have a copy of the will so we know what the intentions are. Some of them uh, do define a death as a separation and we'll say, you know, in the event we separate or one of us dies, this is how we're going to divide our property. Um, sometimes it doesn't end on death and it just says, you know, refer to our will if one of us dies. So again, it's up to the parties and then that it becomes very complicated as to whether or not, um, you want to be including some of your, um, assets after death in the cohabitation agreement or the prenuptial agreement, or if it's sufficient to include it in a will, because wills can be changed, right? They're unilateral documents. And so, um, I would suggest if you're counting on something in a will, you should have it in that contract as a solid backup um, because you never know, maybe somebody will change it later on and you might not even know that they did that or took you out of the will until it's too late and you've then forgone all of your entitlements under the contract. So some things to think about. Right. Good advice. Well, thank you for that. Um, Christine, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you and touch on a topic that does have far more myths to it than actual marriage and divorce situations. So thank you for clearing some of that up. And like I said, Christine will be our keynote speaker on our divorce resource group on meetup. And it's the learn group, I believe it's on July 11th, but I will include that link as well in the show notes and all the ways that you can reach out to Christine. And I really appreciate your time today to introduce this topic and, and just uh, help us get a better understanding of a situation of this ape situation, and what it's like for people in Alberta and the things that they need to, to consider. Well, thank you, Dina. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for having me. And I look forward to yeah, meeting with some of your people on the 11th of July. Fantastic. Have a great rest of your day and we will chat again soon. Thank you. You too. Hopefully you heard something today that helps you wherever you might be in life. Do you have questions or suggestions for a topic you want to know more about? Let me know. Check the show notes for all the contact information. Follow this podcast and find us on social. Know anyone who might find this information helpful? Be a friend and share it. And hey, Thank you for hanging out with me today. Keep smiling that beautiful smile. The world needs your sunshine. It means a lot that you spend this time with us and meet our experts and professionals who can help you through divorce or separation. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com slash terms of service. The link is in the show notes. And the legal language, our disclaimer, Divorce Magazine Canada website, events, resource groups, blog, and all content, including our podcast, is intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. Divorce Magazine Canada does not constitute endorsements for, nor liability, for any claims made in the presenting of this information.